Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia, and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today, I have on the show Robert Chohan, the founder of Kopi House UK. As many Singaporeans know, kopi and kopitiams play key roles in everyday life in Singapore. So in this episode, I speak with Robert about why exactly we should celebrate such an everyday drink and what makes our kopitiam culture truly unique. Let me start with your own personal relationship with Singapore. You know, I was really curious about that because I saw that you were so passionate about promoting coffee from Singapore. So can you tell me about when was the last time you were in Singapore and also your own personal encounter with kopi? Um, well, I mean, I would say that my personal relationship with Singapore is a place that I hold close to my heart. Um, I originally went there in 2015 for a work project and that is when I absolutely fell in love with the city-state. I mean, the, the, the design of the city, the gardens, the greenery, the food. I mean, you cannot ignore the food. There's so much of it. Um, so that's when I fell in love with Singapore. And I decided at that point during this work project that I wanted to return and I wanted to take my then girlfriend and propose to her in Singapore, somewhere far and exotic. And I did. So in 2016, we went back and that's when I proposed to her. So that's quite important to me. Of course, I hold that quite close. And actually, in the end, in 2018, we got married there. So for Singapore itself, that city holds a lot of importance, not just because of the design, because I love the city architecture. I love the food. I have the emotional attachment because of um, both being uh, engaged and also marrying in Singapore. So we had a wedding abroad there, but also because of coffee. So. In 2016, I, I had actually seen um, a few coffee places. In, in 2015, I was only really sort of scoping out the Western-style coffee because that's what I knew. I didn't realize there was a whole coffee world in Singapore, which was Nanyang Kopi. So it's only in 2016 I decided to actually give it a go. In fact, it was in um, not Temple Street, Chinatown, but the next one along, that's where old, uh, Nanyang Old Kopi is or Nanyang Old Coffee. So that was my first taste. Um, I spoke to the, the helpers um, behind the counter at Nanyang Old Coffee and I said, look, I've never had this coffee before. I think I want to try kopi, you know, with condensed milk. Mm. I've done a little bit of reading and I think that's what I want to try. And he goes, yes, try that. That's our traditional coffee. Um, and I said, is it quite sweet? Because I don't like too much sugar in my coffee. And he said, it's sweet, but you'll probably like it. I said, okay, great. So I had a full breakfast set with the half-boiled eggs and kaya toast and uh, kopi. And on tasting it, the first sip, it was literally like a sip of, wow, okay, there's a lot going on in flavor. And then I went back to it and I realized it's completely, completely different to what we have in the West. It's a much louder, bolder flavor. It's very, very robust. It's one of the ones where, you know, Western coffee, you train your palate to understand all of the flavors and the nuances. You don't need to do that with kopi. It it, it slaps you in the face with flavor. And that's what I really liked. Um, and that actually, that first cup, I thought, right, now I need to go and try it at other kopi tiams and see how everyone else does it. But that's a slippery slope. Mm. There's kopi tiams all over Singapore. So you start with one and it's never ending. You just keep going and going. There's been some poor ones, but overall, most of them have been good and some of them have been excellent. So um, for me, it's now my favorite coffee. 
Oh, wow. It's what I drink every single day without fail. At least one cup, sometimes <laughs> two. Two is a bit too much. There's a lot of caffeine, but um, yeah, I, I drink it every day, basically. So it's, for me, I have replaced all of my Western coffee at home with coffee. Oh, that's amazing. You know, I find it very interesting that you say that because, you know, I read online that Hainanese kopi was kind of, it kind of shares similarities with tarifactor roasting, right? It does. And, it's a modified version. Yeah. And I read online that tarifactor beans are considered to be not the best coffee. So why do you think kopi is to be celebrated given that tarifactor beans are not held in high regard in the rest of the world? So, yeah, you're right in how torrefactor beans are held. Um, generally, and it's probably a bit incorrect of, or maybe a bit rude or politically incorrect of me to say, but in a lot of Europe, and I know, some, I know particularly with UK because that's our coffee world here, Spanish coffee and Portuguese coffee generally isn't considered good coffee unless that is a particular taste you like. The... European colonizers brought their coffee with them. And as the expat community grew, they would regularly run out of coffee. So the local Malays at that point thought, well, why, why aren't we serving up our coffee? Okay, it's inferior because it's robusta, it's not Arabica, but we should do something similar. So that's when they started roasting their own coffee beans and sugarcoating them as well. But of course, you sugarcoat in a way that's local to the um, region. So rather than a, a large roasting um, drum, which were very vintage drums back in the day, they were using wax and they were caramelizing in large quantities of sugar. So it was a lot darker. Some said that it was because this is what the Europeans were used to, but other people said it used to hide the imperfections of Robusta. The reason it should be celebrated is it is unique to Singapore. I mean, it's not entirely unique in the sense that you can't find kopi in Malaysia. Kopi comes from Singapore because of the, um, the expats. That's where it was created. And then it spread to Malaysia. But if we just focus on Singapore, it should 100% be celebrated because it is unique to the region. It was invented in Singapore. It has an incredible journey of several hundred years to get it to where it is right now. And definitely the Hainanese added the most input to that. Um, mostly from the early 1900s, probably from about 1300, uh, the 1930s to 1950s, that's when the major changes took place. Um, but given how different it is, it is really a world of coffee outside of the Eurocentric world. So everyone's used to espresso. Things are now coming in where you have pour overs, you know, the kettle where yeah. you just pour over like a V60. That, that's quite new. That's like 10 years, more or less. I mean, filters existed before that. But the Singapore world of coffee offers something completely different. There's no espresso. There's no latte, there's no cappuccino. It's strong coffee with old school milk and sugar. And for people that want something different, they have a new milk, which is evaporated milk. It, it's basically fresh milk, you know, sea being, I think that's the, the hop chew, I think. Um, so sea just means fresh. So historically fresh just meant something that wasn't, um, what would be the word for this? Preserved with sugar. Mm. So this entire world of coffee it is the uh, it for me it is the backbone and blood of singapore because everything happens around kopi tiams and food joints in general so this coffee not only does it come from singapore it's accessible by everyone it's so affordable everyone drinks i mean I, i've heard stories of 
old uncles drinking nothing but coffee. They don't even drink water. They wake up, they drink coffee. If they're thirsty, they drink coffee. In the middle of the night, they drink coffee. It blows my mind that you can have that much caffeine in your body, but that is the love of coffee in Singapore. But here's the thing. From what my Singaporean friends have told me, to them it's just normal. And a good few of them question me and say, why did you do this? Why did you decide to do coffee? And said, because you, ha- you guys have such an incredible product and it's probably a case of you're so exposed to it, you've grown up with it. For you, it's the norm. But for other people, it's not the norm and it's something new for them. And they've said, you know what, you're right. We, we take it for granted. It's something local. We consider it to be something that our uncles and aunties drink, but really a lot of us drink it. And we don't give the importance to it that we should do because it's so normal to us. It's every day. It's available on every street. So just from that, all of that information together makes it important. I mean, it, let's put it this way. If you have a, a, a food or a product or whatever that is so everyday life and you don't even realize that it's so everyday life, that means it's important because everyone celebrates it by, by it being the norm for them. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. that's, that's how I see it. That's how I see it. Mm. So do you think it's normative of um, normative for a Westerner who, who is used to drinking Western coffee to come to Singapore and be blown away by local kopi? Or do you think that is something that is uh, unique to your experience? No, so there's, there's two types of Westerners that, I mean, I've simplified it. I've oversimplified it. There's two types of Westerners. Let's, let's take UK as the example. There's Caucasians and there's everyone else. Caucasians, overall, by and large, everyone I talk to, they only know espresso and everything based around espresso and milky coffee. So latte, cappuccino, flat white. That is their world of coffee. It's what they consider the world of coffee to be. They don't look past it because they don't know about other coffee because it's, it's very, very typical. The biggest things in the world which are celebrated are usually based around a Eurocentric view. And that's how it has historically been because of colonizers. Um, when a Caucasian Brit tastes coffee the first time, at least when I interact with them, I stop them before they taste it. I actually explain it to them and say, please, please don't judge this as if it was European coffee, because it's not. All the nuances you're used to tasting you don't need to do that. You don't need to search for flavor. The flavor will come to you. It's completely palate filling. It's a stronger cup. There's a richness and a boldness that you just will not find in European coffee. And if they accept that, they will then try it and they'll try with an open mind. The people that do not do that first and just taste it saying, I know what coffee is, for them, they've ruined the experience because like, oh, no, that's too much. I can't take it. It's too powerful, it's too strong. But those that actually take in everything I've told them and taste it, they've had a very positive experience with um, coffee. I, in fact, I, I was actually um, doing a presentation at the London Brunch Festival in 2019. That was our first, and so far because of COVID, that was our only event. And I was up on stage, and I did four different coffees. So there was coffee um, Okasong, Gopi C, um, Gopi and Gopi Guyu, butter coffee. I had five testers for each, so 20 in all. And having explained all of the drinks to them, 
20 out of 20 people gave a positive review or a positive uh, bit of feedback. Mm. And I think that's testament in itself. If, if 100% of people say they enjoyed the coffee, then it's got to be good. <laughs> and all of them said, we never knew this existed. We had no idea there was a world of coffee outside of espresso and the Italian world of coffee. I said, well, there's a lot out there. You should try. Now, that takes us on to the second grip. So I said the first was Caucasian and the second is everyone else. It's a lot easier with everyone else. Um, people like myself of Indian origin, other, um, let's say, Asians like East Asian, um, Afro as well. So people from the West Indies or Africa, they warm to the coffee very, very easily because they're used to their own cuisine having loud flavors. So for them, the robustness of their cuisine, the pungency of the flavors, they're used to it. So for them, this coffee goes hand in hand. And they have actually said, I love this coffee. It is the best coffee I've had. Other coffee on the UK high street isn't like this. Like, yes. Yeah. So yeah, um, we've had a lot of positive response. The only thing is there is a lot of education that goes behind it. And the primary piece of education is it is not Western coffee. Don't treat it like Western coffee. You know, I'm, I'm really curious about how you started learning about kopi. You know, you said that you learned from talking to different people, the uncles, mm -hmm. the aunties. Did you ever feel locked out? Because it is um, kind of like a dying trait. So most people who know about it tend to be from the older generation who might not be, you know, comfortable with speaking in English. So was it mm -hmm. ever a difficult process for you? Um, not really. So initially I used to just purchase coffee in Singapore or copy. I said purchase coffee and bring it back to UK. I, I purchased from all sorts of different, um, suppliers. It, it could have been something as simple as toast box and yakun. Um, sometimes I would go to specialist roasters. That is how I got into the process of brewing coffee. So I, I was self-taught. I wanted to replicate the flavors I had back in Singapore. And to be honest, that wasn't difficult to do. The interesting stuff is when I started meeting a number of different roasters to, to see if they could do what I wanted them to do, to, to produce for me a, um, a proprietary blend, a blend that only I had that would work with a UK palette. And the same question came up in all of them, which was, at first it was disbelief. It was, wow, are you sure this will work in UK? Like, let, I need to try it. This coffee, I have fallen in love with it. I need to give it a go. Like, really, La? Like, yes, really, I want to do this. Like, we don't think it's going to work. Trust me. Let, let me do what I need to do, and then let's see what happens. We'll do a test. And I said, the first thing I want to do is the maize that is predominantly there in many of the roasts, I, I don't really want to have that there because the, the UK palate, I think they would find that just a little bit too strong. And maize is slowly being phased out with a lot of Singaporean roasters. So you'll find that. If maize is still there at some kopitiams, it may not be there in other kopitiams. Um, I personally didn't speak to any of the uncles and aunties in the kopitiam about how to brew coffee. Um, I think sometimes they used to be called the kopitia, the, the, mm. the coffee kid. Um, so I never used to really talk to them. What I used to do, though, is go to as many as I could and watch them brew coffee. And that, that was actually difficult because kopi is brewed in batches. And when you brew it in batches, the idea is that you, you serve it up very, very quickly. So if you, if you have like a line of patrons, you just power through them as a batch is brewing. You're taking orders from one to the next. And before you know it, you're at the front of the queue and you don't have a chance to see what they're really doing. But sometimes I would stand to the side 
and just observe. Um, I know that they have their own secrets as to how long to brew their coffee, the, the blends that they use, the immersion time, how many times to direct it as well. But it all changes, uncle or auntie, store by store, it's all a bit different. So I, I just watched everything and I realized that there's two main different ways to brew coffee. One, if it's fine ground, is to just stir a lot for 30 seconds and filter. And that's the end of that. That isn't as popular or is not as common found as the alternative, which is a medium grind size. And that is where the steeping time involves. So that takes a few minutes. So you, you add the water in, you stir you steep to let it infuse and then you filter and then you can direct you can pull it a number of times if you want to as well um so all the things that i've learned personally when it comes to brewing coffee i will self-taught but observing what they do definitely helps me with large batch brewing so um everything i've done is based around a two cup portion here's the interesting thing when i tell singaporean roasters that i can do single portions like you can't do single portions. Like, no, no, I've learned to do single portion. Like, we can't do it. How can you do it? It's, with a lot of work, I sat there for like four months, constantly changing recipes and te water temperature. And the reason why no one considers doing a small portion like this is because in Singapore, gopis everywhere. You go out to have gopis. So everyone brews in large batches. They brew in, in the much larger, um, you know, the full-size pot which you see at all the coffee teams. So for them, that's the normal. So in fact, there was actually a time with two roasters, I taught them how to brew one portion at a time. They had never considered it. Um, and that's when we started exchanging knowledge. So it was really, really helpful for me to sit there for a few months and just learn how to brew myself to get the same flavor, um, the same intensity and the same mouthfeel. You know, coffee is very thick. So it has a very rich, luscious mouthfeel. So I took my time to do that. And then I then took the knowledge that they had for large batch brewing. And that is what I have um, sort of passed on to all of our brewers in UK. So we have a few companies that work with us and they use our coffee. And that's what I've taught them to do. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it was a, a trial sort of experience. Unfortunately, no one could give me the information on how to brew single portions on my own. That is what I did by myself. But watching everyone else and how they do things, it really fed in and I absorbed all of that information. Um, the thing is, you can't speak to the uncles and aunties about how to brew coffee. They don't have time for it. They're too busy because coffee is very, very low margin. If you don't sell quantity, these coffee tiams, they won't make their money. And all they want to do is sell coffee and toast and eggs. So if you take that time, I tried once. It wasn't good. Like, we don't have time. We're, we're serving other customers. Like, okay, no problem. I got it. Don't worry. I'm off. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. I have two questions upon hearing yeah. everything that you said. I think the first question is, is one method superior over the other? Is it better to brew in large batches or is it better to brew the coffee in small batches? I know the Singaporeans believe, the roasters believe, brew in large batch to get the flavor. But with all the work I've put in, my large batch and my small batch, I've done a trial of both. They taste identical. They really do. It, it, took, it wasn't difficult to get to where I got the single batch to or the smaller portions to, but it did take a lot of trial and error to figure that out. And then what I decided to do was to actually take 
that small batch quantity of the weight of coffee and how much water and simply extend that into larger batches. So now there's consistency across everything. Um, in fact, we now use a stronger ratio of coffee. Um, so I think in Singapore, I think it's um, 12 grams of coffee to 180 ml um, or, or something like that. I, I, I can't remember. But for my, my brew, it's 20 grams of coffee to um, 200 ml of water. Mm. So I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but when I did the calculation, our one actually works out stronger. Yeah. Um, that, that actually helps because when you remove the maize, which many Brits wouldn't be able to pinpoint what that flavor is, they would just say it's a strong coffee. And I, there's a flavor in there. I don't know what that flavor is. That, that particularly strong flavor would mask the overall coffee flavor. Um, so I decided to remove that. So with our coffee, I then increased the amount of coffee in the actual cup to give a, a stronger flavor. And that's what's worked for us at the moment. You know, I find it interesting that you were talking about calculations and exact numbers. And I feel mm -hmm. that it's something that's very, very Western because my husband is. Uh, is. He's a coffee enthusiast and he, he loves, you know, getting things down to the last gram. But, you know, in Singapore, I feel that the spirit of, of the way that a lot of cooks approach food, I'm not sure about kopi, is one that's mm -hmm. very free-spirited. You know, we have this phrase called, it, is, yeah. it means, you know, by eye or, you know, going by feel. So do you feel that the kopi tiam uncles also brew their coffee by feel or is it very precise? So the Asian cuisine in general, all of Asia, the recipes are really by eye. You know, recipes are passed down by family for all of the food. So if I get a recipe from my mother, it's like, oh, you use this much ginger. Like, how much is this much? That doesn't make any sense. Um, but then once you're used to it, you realize, I'm looking at this, this quantity of ginger, whatever that is, that looks about right for the amount I'm making. So that, that's very, very true. That is there in every element of all Asian cuisine. It is um, there with food and with drink as well. So we could do the same with, let's say, masala chai. So masala tea, you, you sort of just gauge how much you want to put in. In the kopi tiams, it's very true. They would just use, from a large tin of ground coffee, they would use a ladle, usually, or a ladle and a half. But every time you dip into the tin to get your ladle of coffee grounds, Sometimes it'll be higher, sometimes it'll be lower, but the main thing is the bulk flavor is there. And one cup will taste very, very similar to the next cup. The reason why I think the Western world are so sort of strict with their measurements is that has been what coffee in this part of the world or the, the European coffee world, that has been what they promote. They do it with espresso, they do it with grind timing, so how long you grind your coffee for, how small you grind it for, how long you extract the espresso for. And it adds up if the base ingredient can facilitate that. So Arabica coffee, you can, you can completely lose certain flavor notes if you brew the exact same bean with a different grind size or for a different duration, you, you brew it for longer. Um, you don't get that with a lot of Asian cuisine. Our flavors are prominent, they're big and they're loud. So if it's already there, you don't need to worry about it. The reason why I have sat down and worked, you know, with 20 grams of coffee, 200 grams of water, brewed for three minutes is that is what people expect. Mm. And if that's what they expect in the UK, that is what they need to have. And I've seen people brew, they brew exactly to the tea. It'll be 
I will measure out 20 grams of coffee, which is fine. You can do it. I will measure out 200 grams of hot water. I'll set a timer on my phone for three minutes. I'll stir it 10 times and then I will filter it. What I do in the morning, grab my cup, two tablespoons of coffee. I can gauge it. And the thing, the weird thing is, if I now measure what I've actually taken, it just happens to be 20 grams. I'm so used to taking that portion. So that comes with experience. And then I feel to about halfway because I, I know from experience that is roughly 200 grams. Um, but people love the fuss of exact measurements because that is European coffee. Even the V60, which is a very popular filter method from Japan, they love doing timing on that. They love doing the bloom time, which fair enough, you do need to do it. They love the measurement of coffee. They look at the grind size. They look at how you pour your concentric circles and not to hit the filtered paper. All these things add up. But I think in, in a way, that's also the experience. I used to do that a lot. I, I have all this coffee kit I don't use anymore. I just use my cup and my sock filter, and that's enough for me. And I know that if I put in two tablespoons and half water, I've got the flavor I want. There's no fuss. And that is why I love Gopi. There's no fuss involved. It will be the same every time I drink it. It will always taste great. Mm. And that's, that's the important bit. And it's easy. Very easy. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I think when we talk about Gopi, you know, you mentioned the dominance of the Hainanese community within the industry. But I was also mm -hmm. wondering if Gopi, could, Gopi is considered something that could transcend ethnicity. Because you know you have the you have coffee in the mamak stalls which are owned by yep. Indians or Indian Muslims and they also make kopi, and you also have the kadai kopi which is owned by the Malay community. So I'm yep. sure they also have their own variant of kopi. Was it something that you they experienced do. in Singapore? So um, the, the kadai kopi, so that that's ver their version of basically saying coffee shop. Mm. Um, I haven't specifically gone to any locations in Singapore where I have seen that sign up. Front to identify this as a Malay stall owner. To be fair, every time I've really looked, most of them have been of Chinese origin, I would say. Um, I haven't had a good enough eye to know if they are Teochew origin or if they are Hainanese or if they're Fujianese. Um, I just see it to be that what they serve is Hainanese coffee because that's how things have sort of developed in Singapore. But yes, I would say that because Singapore is so multicultural, you know, through its history, so many ethnicities have migrated into Singapore. Everyone's take on cuisine has changed. There's such a mishmash of cuisine. Um, like you have, let's say, um, okay, prata. So roti, which comes from India, has been fully adopted by the, uh, back then, the Malay community, which has turned into the Malaysian community, which has now just turned into... Malaysia and Singapore and other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, and then I think there's another one, Murtabak as well. So that's come from the Arab states. That's entirely adopted by the, the locals. And if people adopt cuisine from other cultures, you can easily do the same with, with coffee. So coffee was already being drunk in India anyway. You know, Der Tarek, which is the, basically tea, condensed milk. And then you pull it. All of that's been adopted in. And if that comes in, it just makes sense that the Mamaks, for example, would adopt coffee because they wanted an alternative. Some people drink tea, some people drink coffee. So coffee, not only does it transcend ages, young to old, it transcends communities as well. It goes from one ethnicity, Indian, to another, Malay, to another, Chinese, 
everyone celebrates the same. They might have their way of brewing it. So I know that the Indians, they love doing the tarik. So you can have kopi tarik, for example. Um, and that's how they do it because that's what they used to do in India. But they use the local coffee to do that. They don't use Indian coffee to do it. It's only the local stuff because that's the local flavor. Um, that's, I think that's what I love about Singapore. Everyone sort of just, every community gets in there and they adopt cuisine and custom from other cultures that mm. have migrated to the island. And yeah, coffee, it, it's widespread throughout the island. Every ethnicity gets involved. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah agreed. Um, can we talk a little bit about Kopi Kuyu, which is uh, butter coffee, which you mentioned previously? Yeah. How do you think it originated? Because, you know, now you have butter coffee being really popular in the West, but so many years ago, there was this variant of coffee in Asia. So can you tell me a little bit about its history? So what I have read and also found online, um, spoken to people, in Singapore's earlier history of the early 1900s, there was, there was a lot of um, construction. A lot of the laborers simply couldn't afford breakfast. They were on very, very low wages, but everyone could afford kopi because it was the one universal cheap, whatever, drink food. It, it was the one universal cheap item that everyone could start their day with. They needed additional calories. So the story goes, they had their coffee with milk and sugar. So that was the condensed milk. So you have the sweetness to, um, I think that's what everyone was used to, sweet coffee. That was a thing back then, particularly so with Asians. They had the caffeine to really wake them up and power them for their early morning. And they simply wanted to add additional calories. And the story goes, butter goes in, you stir it, and now you've got some additional calories for your breakfast. But what that's turned into is, I think a lot of people have realized that coffee with butter not only tastes incredible, I mean, having butter fat in, in anything tastes incredible, to be honest. Um, but the additional calories keep you going. The caffeine gives you the buzz, but the butter helps reduce the caffeine crash. This is what people believe. So usually you have a strong cup of coffee. Um, so in, in, in UK, you might have two cups to get the real buzz that you're after. In Singapore, you have the one cup of coffee because it's so strong. And rather than having a crash and going, oh, I feel drained, the butter reduces that. But some also say that it enhances the flavor as well. So, I mean, to be fair, you add fat to anything, it tastes better straight away. So by adding dairy fat to a strong, robust drink, which has sweetness and dairy milk already in it, and adding another fat to it, it just enhances the entire experience. But um, for the early Kopi Guyu drinks for them, Supposedly, it was a very cheap breakfast to keep them going until lunchtime. Mm. That's what's been, that's what I've read and that's what's been told to me. Yeah. And do you think that could be a reason as to why margarine was also added to the coffee when it was roasting for the extra? No. So um, I've spoken to several roasters. Why do you add margarine? And the same answer is always there. If you do a, a Western Torrefaxa roast, it's a very, very thin layer of sugar and it cools very easily. The beans are just barely glossy. If you look at the amended Torrefacto in Singapore, there's more than just a very slight coating. It, it's, it's gloopy, it's sticky, it's black, and you can see a bean and you can see all sorts of clumps of molten sugar stuck to it. 
I've seen this coffee being roasted and I've seen how much work goes into separating sticky beans as they cool. They would add margarine right at the end so that as the beans cooled, the margarine would melt and coat each bean. So all the beans would start to separate. They still stick at some point, you know, it's still clumps of it together, but that was the only way they could separate um, the beans. And if you look at, let's say, Ipo coffee. Mm. So, you know, Gopi started in Singapore and then it moved east, sorry, sorry, west towards mainland Malaysia. It ended up in different parts of Malaysia. And when it hit Ipo, um, they've now caught, produced what they call Ipo white coffee, which funny enough, just on a side note, that is essentially coffee with condensed milk. So the coffee that Singaporeans drink in Singapore, if you order kopi, technically that's Ipo white coffee. People think it refers to the production process of the roasting element, but it isn't. It really is just a drink. But when coffee hit, um, coffee roasting hit Ipo, they added um, salt and butter as part of the roasting process, not because it was something to add an additional, uh, like a major additional flavor, the same way a kopi guyu cup of kopi would be, but that is just how they preferred to roast coffee back then. And in your chats with these uh, coffee roasters in Singapore, do you think they had any idea what torrefacto roasting was? Or do you think they pretty much did their own thing and you know people started seeing the similarities between the two? Um, so some of them knew the term. Others didn't know the term, but they did say, this is very similar to what the Europeans do, but this is our version of it. So they were aware, every single one was aware that this existed in other parts of the world. Um, some of them didn't really know the history as to why it started, because to them it, it wasn't important. This is just a product of copy, and this is how you roast it. This is how you sugarcoat it. They weren't too fussed about how it came about. For them, that wasn't important. What was important was producing the coffee and roasting it. But um, every single one of them did know this existed in a, in a different version in Europe. And some of them knew the formal name Torrefactor. Mm. Um, so yeah, they, they knew, they knew. In fact, they do claim, some of them do claim that this is how other parts of the world do it. And some of them said, this is how other parts of the world do it. And because they had the, the older knowledge of what um, led to the creation of copy, they then said, this is how other parts of the world do it. And this is what we have taken and we have made it ours in our own way. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, so I read online that torrefacto roasting really came out of the Spanish Civil War when there was a mm -hmm. lack of basic goods and that's why people started coating the, the coffee beans that's right. Yeah. sugar, right? But that was pretty recent. That was like in 1936 to 1939. That's right, that's right. This is what I have heard, but um, we know that, if you look at it this way, a lot of the early colonizers, they, they could only travel by ship. Mm. and that ship journey would take a very long time to get to Singapore. There was no Suez Canal. You had to go around Africa to, to, um, to get to where you needed to get to. Um, they, people say that adding sugar roasting to coffee, so the Torrefacto preserves the bean. And the, the problem with a lot of Asian history is a lot of it isn't documented in the same way as let's say the Romans. The Romans were master record keepers. So a lot of it becomes hearsay. So when you start piecing together different bits, you realize what actually makes sense. There was no reason for the early Malays to sugarcoat their beans. Because why would you do that? Why would the two go together? For most people, coffee is coffee. But if they wanted to roast local coffee 
for the um, for the early Europeans that were already there and running out of their regular coffee, they would do what they had already seen. And if they had seen that coffee was already coated with sugar, there's more encouragement for them to do the exact same thing so the Europeans would drink the local coffee. So that is why people do think that Yes, the Spanish started doing this in the early 1900s, but some of the earliest colonizers were actually the Portuguese. I think that was in the 1500s, I think, mm. so the 16th century. So um, if they were bringing in their coffee, which could last the sea journey as well, it only makes sense that that coffee would be coated with sugar and the Malays would copy that in order to serve the local coffee to them. Yeah. And having spoken to a few different authors and people who are in the industry, they too recognize record keeping is horrendous in most of Asia in its early history. It is terrible. This is why recipe books didn't really exist in the same way that they do today now. Um, so recipe books today tell you what portions to use in terms of you need X grams of this ingredient, Y grams of that ingredient. Um, that's modern. But back then it was all just knowledge passed down by story from an older generation to younger generation. So that's why record keeping wasn't a big thing. Um, and because of that lack of information, you can only piece together what actually makes sense. Let's put it this way. If Malaysians, the early Malays decided to add sugar, the question would be why, why would you add so much sugar as well? Um, and it, there, there's no, in my eyes and the eyes of a few people I've spoken to, there's just, simply no reason to do it unless they had seen someone else do it beforehand because yeah. they don't need to preserve the coffee they've been drunk immediately but if other people preserve their coffee and that is what they used to bring over that is what they used to that flavor profile is what is common to them and um and known to their palate the malays would do the same i think that yeah. makes a lot of sense um and i i totally agree with you about the record keeping and documentation in asia it's oh terrible terrible yeah. I, I wish there was more because I want to read more about Gopi. But there's, there's like one Gopi museum in Singapore, considering how much coffee there is in Singapore. And I think, if I haven't been to it, like knowingly, I think that coffee museum actually is in Nanyang Old Coffee in Chinatown. I think it's at the back. But yeah, that, that's all there is. Consider how much coffee there is. And there's only one, li one little, little room just to show you and tell you about coffee. I couldn't believe it. So can we talk about the experience of being in the Kopitiam? Coming from the Western world, how do you feel the whole experience differs? Oh, it's, it's completely different. Um, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about a Western coffee shop and how it is so different to what you see in Singapore. In a Western coffee shop, I'm throwing this number in. I don't know if this percentage is correct, but it's just my gut feeling. 80 to 90% of their turnover is probably coming from coffee alone or beverages in general. Food is not at the forefront. Food is, you want a sandwich? Great, we'll do sandwiches for you. You want a pastry or a, um, a slice of cake? We can do that for you. If you want to sit there and work on your laptop, you can do that. Here's the Wi-Fi password. You have people who come in and say, yeah, I want, I've done this before. This is why I know what beans are you using today? I want a filter coffee. What's the selection? Um, and they will talk you through. 
I've stopped doing that now because it's just pointless. I know what I like. And to be fair, when you get into a certain grade of tasting Arabica coffee, you only start liking, liking certain flavors, citrus or berry notes or hazelnut or chocolate, generally speaking. Um, the Gopi Tiam world, I love. It's not just for coffee. You can walk in, you can order a coffee, you can order a juice, you can order a tea, or you can order one of the best meals you've had in your life. And that, for me, is what Gopi Tiam experience is. is it is a location you can go to. You can go on your own. You can have an early morning breakfast. I see many, many people do that. Let's say Toast Box. The stores in the Hawker Centers, they would go to a coffee store and they would order a coffee to take away. Maybe not any food, just a coffee to start their day. Um, but if you go to a proper Gopi Tiam that offers food as well as um, beverages, you can sit down. You can completely ignore coffee and tea and you can just eat food or you can just go in for coffee for a pick-me-up or you can go in to relax or there's so many oars. You can go in with your friends and family and have a meal together. You can go in with, um, so if you're a parent, you can go in with your children and that can be their first memory of having coffee and having, um, let's say a chicken curry, for example. The Gopi Tiam, is so different from the Western coffee shop experience. In a coffee shop, you go in and it's about the coffee and nothing else. Mm -hmm. In a Gopi Tiam, it's community. Mm -hmm. People of all walks of life will go in, people who may be very well off, high net worth individuals, or people who are maybe below the breadline, who their income is not so great, but everything in a Gopi Tiam is affordable and you can go there and experience either a meal together or your daily food. It's a place for the community to get together. And that's something, honestly, that we lack here in the UK. We don't have that. Mm. And it's a shame. I'd love to open a Kopi Tiam one day. One day. <laughs> one day. So, you know, now I feel that Kopi Tiams are trying to cater to a different crowd than they have before. So now with a lot of mm -hmm. uh, millennials who crave creature comforts, who crave yeah. icons, um, I, I feel that there is almost a McDonaldization of the Kopitiam. And I was just wondering what you felt about that. Okay. So the three big brands in Singapore that I'm aware of, there's um, Toastbox. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows Toastbox, Yakun, and Killini. I think they're, they're the big three. Um, I was thinking about this beforehand because I, I like to look at how the, the coffee and the food scene in general changes in Singapore. There's nothing wrong with what, you, what we would call the McDonaldization of these kopi tiams, as long as the essence of what makes it a kopi tiam isn't lost. So they would need to offer food. They would need to offer beverage. It would need to be affordable to the vast majority of people. Yes, they would probably raise their prices because it's a business at the end of the day, multi-location. Multi so they want to make sure that they don't have below a certain percentage of profit. Um, the other thing is that they need to offer consistency. So as long as their coffee is actually good and it tastes um, hand-brewed, there's nothing really wrong with that. I know that a lot of people go to these types of locations for convenience because they're island-wide, that you know, the multi-location, there is standardization. What you receive in one copy tiam is should be identical to what you receive in the in the same company but in a different location. That should be ideal. Um, I think that people accept a lower quality of coffee 
when they do that, though. I mean, I, I don't see anything wrong with Yakun and uh, Killini and Toastbox. I, I think I've probably frequented Toastbox more than I have with the other two. Um, probably because I love the design. I just love that it's white and there's something about the way it is. And the, the portions are large. They, they've clearly taken a large portion, a large mug of coffee, which is very European, I think. You know, a lot of Europeans and, and even other parts of, West, of the Western world, like America, they, they're interested in large, big coffee, not the small demitasse style cups that you get with Gopi, the porcelain ones. Um, I think the coffee, honestly, is not as good as you get with other kopitiams and stores. But I think that is acceptable because that is how they run their business. Um, here's the thing. If I wanted an excellent coffee near Chinatown, I would go to um, Honglim Center and I would go to, I think it's called Dongshen, Dongshen. I, I can't tell how to pronounce it. That is my favorite coffee stall in the area. Their coffee tastes different. But the problem is, if I'm on the other side of Singapore and I want that flavor, I have to travel for it. I have to go into um, Chinatown to be able to get that. Mm. Whereas with Toastbox, if I just want Kaya toast and coffee, I don't have to do that. I can just pull out a phone and look at the local locations for that company and find it. Um, there is a problem, though. Overall, the, the younger generation, like the millennials that we've identified, they are slowly gravitating towards Starbucks and big brands like that because for them, and here's the thing, this is happening across all of Asia. Asians aspire to have what the Europeans and Americans have. Not because it's good. It was good Lord, Starbucks, for me, I, I can't drink it. It's, for me, it's terrible. I would rather drink the worst gopi from the worst coffee shop, gopi tiam, than drink Starbucks. Because when they first started, they were hand brewing. Now the baristas don't know anything. It's just push a button and wait for the result. Um, and a lot of the, the youth in Singapore have started to gravitate towards companies like this because they aspire to have something that's foreign, something that's not local. Um, there is a smaller number of people where they have moved back towards Gopi because they realized it is a good local brew. And you know what? There's a lot of art, a lot of art that goes into it and we're supporting local businesses. Um, the problem with a lot of Gopi Tiams is when the uncles and aunties get old, they worked very hard to raise their kids and put them through education. No one wants to take over the reins, but there are a few um, I'll mention one that I've been to, Coffee Break, I think it is. They, I, where are they? I think they're at Moy Street, I think. I think they have two or three branches, maybe. The younger generation, so the children of the original uncle and auntie, they have taken over and they not only produce the regular coffee, but they do flavored syrups. So they're doing something a bit different. They've got black sesame, they've got hazelnut. Honestly, I haven't tasted them. I just went for the coffee. But I've seen normal everyday adults who clearly look like they're in their 40s and 50s buying this coffee from them. So they're offering something new. It sort of falls halfway between old school coffee tiam and Western coffee shop. They're offering something right in the middle. So if they take their format and they were to expand that island wide with multiple locations, you could call that a McDonaldization of coffee, but they're offering 
the local coffee with a twist. You can have it as normal or you can have it with a syrup. I mean, it's something as simple as that, having a syrup. But for them, they've now started reaching a market of a younger generation of Singaporeans out who would have gone to Starbucks. But when I looked at their queue, yes, there were some older people ordering the syrup coffees, but there were surprisingly a lot of young people ordering a syrup coffee. Um, so it, you could go large scale like Toastbox and Yakun. You could do that, or you could go smaller coffee store scale with multiple locations. As long as the consistency or the product is standardized across all of them and the quality is good, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. What, what, what do you feel about that? Do you think it's acceptable? I feel a bit on the fence about it because, um, you know, now in Singapore, you see some hawker centers with uh, coffee shops run by the other generation. And it's all lots of lattes and lots of, you know, espresso style drinks, but using maybe local roasted coffee. So I feel that it's a bit of a bastardization of local heritage, but that's probably because I'm such a purist about it. This resistance to, to change, you know, but, you know, as you said, I think the key thing is staying relevant, but not losing the essence of what the kopitiam stand for or stood for. So let's take this example. Um, People say, I haven't personally heard an Italian person say it, but people say the Italians, their espresso, which is the purest espresso, lots of deep, dark flavors. You know, in in a good espresso blend in Italy, they say they use about 10% Robusta anyway for the depth. Um, there's a lot of hazelnut and dark chocolate and cacao. Espresso in UK and other parts of Europe has changed a lot. Now we don't do a dark roast, we do a medium roast. And people say the Italians laugh at us because we bastardized their version of the original espresso. But for us, this is our coffee market now. Our coffee market uses mostly medium roast for espresso, even though on paper you should use a dark roast. But this is how coffee has changed and made it more accessible because many people wouldn't enjoy the darker flavors anyway, because a lot of people, they still think they like coffee, but they don't actually know coffee. They're the people that go to Starbucks and say, I love coffee, but they've ordered a dessert in a cup, you know, it's whipped cream and everything else. Mm. Um, So coffee's changed like that over here. I think for the coffee industry, or specifically the coffee industry to survive in Singapore, I think at some point along the way, there needs to be some major changes, not because I want them and you want them, but because the, the local coffee drinkers will demand them because the palates will change. Mm. So maize, which is very typically Hainanese, you know, the story of maize is that they wanted to make coffee even more affordable. So they bulked out coffee with some maize. It reduces the cost. And it means their profit margin goes up as well because coffee was, and it still is, very, very low margin. For the older generation, some say they won't, the uncles and aunties won't drink gopi unless there's maize in it because that is the flavor that they grew up with. That is gopi for them. But unfortunately, the older generation always come to an end and there's a new older generation and then a new younger middle-aged generation and a new younger generation. As the generations move on, palates will change. So initially, coffee was, was, I guess you could call it a bit rough on the palate, but that is what the norm was. Now, you'll find roasters adding not just Robusta, they might add a touch of Arabica for mm. a bit of complexity and a little bit of Liberica. Because it has a, if you could use a good Liberica, you get a really nice 
smoky sort of fragrance to it as well, which otherwise you wouldn't have in your coffee. Um, so they've started changing the blend. Some people use 100% Robusta, other roasters use a mixture of blends because they know it adds more fragrance. The Western view is get the coffee and shine, make the flavors which are there shine. But the Asian view is get your coffee and add flavors to your coffee. That, that is the Asian way of doing it, which is fine. It, it's a different world. But as um, generations change, they will demand other things. So now I think, and I could be mistaken, but this is what I've seen. I'm not finding maize, let's say from 2016 to last year, 2020. Yes, the same coffee stores I went to, they still use maize in their coffee. But there's an increasing number of coffee stores that do not use maize. Like Toastbox, there's no maize. It's just Torrefacta roasted beans. I haven't drunk enough Yakun coffee to memorize that flavor. Um, because I always used to go to Toastbox because I really love their Kaya toast. Um, but I don't know if um, Yakun use maize. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't because they want to make it more um, accessible for a larger number of people, particularly the younger people, because it's the younger people who keep them going. Um, so as palettes change, maize has started to be stripped out and other beans are being added in. You could argue that's not purist, but that is what the generational change is demanding. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years from now, maize is even less used, maybe certain copies, let's call it a decade. In 10 years from now, maize, I think, will start to drop off the coffee scene in Singapore and people will start doing more exotic blends. So you might have a base, which is just pure robusta, and then others might start doing 50% Arabica and 50% robusta because that will be what the, the new uh, younger generation will demand because that the Arabica and the fanciness of the word is associated with Western culture. So they will want that in their local coffee. Yeah. So what about yeah. for you guys at Kopi House UK? What kind of kopi do you serve? The coffee that I promote is what I would call, and I might get shot for this, it's what I call a modernized version of Singaporean Nanyang coffee. So the way I, I like to promote it is I have taken old world products, because it is very much old world, but even though it's changed, especially with the Hainanese involvement, and I've taken it and pulled it into the modern world. And I've got a, a middle ground that sits between Western coffee and, and true old school Nanyang coffee. And the feedback I've had from not just Western people, but specifically Singaporeans, is they tell me this coffee is as good as anything we get in Singapore. And they actually say, not only is it as good, it's also smoother because it, there's no maize, it's cleaner. It has more of a coffee flavor and that was very important. So the coffee we have is a traditional Singaporean roast mm -hmm. without the maize, which is acceptable because in Singapore, many places are not using maize anymore. Um, and we've taken away the margarine because it, it um, reduces shelf life, it's not needed. You need a bit more work to separate the beans, but that's okay. If people want to do the work, that, that's fine. Uh, our roasters produce for us and um, they, they have no issue. They, they said it's a good idea not to have the margarine. Yeah. Um, and as a result, our coffee's won awards now as well in the UK, which wow. I'm very thankful for. Fantastic. So now that there is recognition for Nanyang Kopi, as you call it, mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you have achieved your mission or your dream with Kopi House? No. 
There's many, many, many more things I need to do. Um, the problem is it, it is effectively just me. I handle all of the import. I handle all of the um, payment processing, the marketing, the packaging ordering, the dispatch. And initially, Copy House started as a test. I wasn't sure how the market would respond. So my first order was 30 kilos of coffee. That's nothing. It took a while to sell that on because people didn't understand what it was. They knew it was coffee, but they were a bit worried as to, it's not the coffee I know. How are you meant to brew this? Oh, what is this sock? Why do you have to use a sock? You don't have to, but that gives you the best result. As the companies had more exposure, we've started selling more. But there's still two major things I really, really want to do. The first, as I mentioned before, I really want a copy to I want people to experience not only the beverage element, and of course the coffee will be the main product. I will make it shine. I want people to have as much access as possible to nasi lemak, to a good chicken curry, to Hainanese chicken rice, things that I love and miss from Singapore. I want that to be in a kopi tiam that I put together. But one that oozes a premium feel. So not your everyday sort of standard kopi tiam in Singapore where the chairs might be plastic, the table will be the old sort of plastic tables, which is beautiful. I love that style. Um, I think, uh, what, what's the one that I really love? Heap, heaps and Long, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I love that look. It's very, it's stuck in the 1950s. Nothing changed. It. It's and my favorite kopitiam in Singapore. You have like the marble tables and the wooden chairs. Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. I've I done a little photo shoot there as well. I'll send some photos to you after. And I, when I'm on my own, because I've been to Singapore a few times uh, for coffee purposes by myself. Um, so I didn't take my wife with me. She, she stayed here for work. I've literally gone there and sat down for like three hours ordering coffee and just watching the world go by. I people watch. You see an uncle in a corner. He's fallen asleep. Another uncle is reading a newspaper. Another uncle has come in with his friends and they sit down and have coffee. Some aunties come in and have some food. And you just sit there and watch it. It's beautiful. There's something calming about it. It's like you're in another world. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to do a gopitiam, which is a very modernized version, very clean a very premium feel and we specialize in a number of dishes the other thing which is going to be perhaps in one way more difficult is to get retailers to stock our coffee and the reason that will be difficult is we are the only company of its type offering this particular type of coffee like if you're a regular western roaster if you have a good product you have a good product everyone knows coffee is coffee but when you have a different coffee that doesn't work in espresso machines or is not intended for espresso machine is not intended for pour over that is when things become a bit difficult the retailer may say oh you know our customer our clientele base may not understand what this coffee is so that will be a hurdle but it's one that i'll be working on well thank you so much for for being part of this podcast and for sharing so much with me i, I really enjoyed this conversation most welcome that wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Robert Chohan, the founder of Kopi House UK. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.